Genesis chapter 3. The sermon text is Genesis 3, 15. Before we hear God's word read, let us go again to our God asking for his help in understanding this great text. Our God, we humbly petition for your grace. We depend upon your grace every moment of the day. We need to see your word and what it means, and we pray that your spirit would be upon us this morning. Amen. Genesis 3.15, hear now the word of God. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned last week, during this month, which we at Cross Creek call Reformation Month, we are looking at some ologies. During the month of October, we are taking, we tend to take key Reformational truths, whether it's the five solas of the Reformation or five points of Calvinism or something else, and we consider those truths deeply. This year, we are looking at what I'm calling Reformation ologies, different categories of theology. And certainly every single Lord's Day could be filled with a Reformationology. There are many ologies, so the list is a selective one. Just had to choose five. Last week, we considered Reformed teleology. Now, adults, I asked the children three questions, and let me ask you this one question. What is teleology? Do you remember? What was that? Of the end, Okay. It's a word about end. It's a word about purpose. It's a word about goal. And so we recalled our basic catechism answer that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the larger catechism answer, our chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. That is who we are. That is what we are called to do. In the following weeks, we're looking at Reformed eschatology, no controversy there, Reformed aletheology, and Reformed doxology. But this morning, we have under the microscope Reformed protology. Again, not a made-up word, a real word that real people use, just not often. I know it's not a word that comes from my mouth regularly. But protology is a study of first. So protos is the Greek word which means first. This is a word, an account of first things. That's why you see in your outline the mention of first. So we're examining first things, which are intimately connected to last things, eschatology. You could say that today's message and next Lord's Day's message in the morning are parts one and two of a mini-series in this overall series of Reformationologies. We must have as first place in our hearts, that goal of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever as we consider first things here in Genesis 3.15. Christians struggle to glorify God and enjoy Him forever because of the threefold enmity of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Now, the observant observer 
will object immediately and say, come on now, Pastor Mock. We know that Genesis 3 is not the first page of Scripture, and so it is not the first page of God's story. How then can it be first things? And to that, all I can say is, well, you got me there. I can't pull one over on you. But behind first things related to redemption is the fall. And behind the fall is creation. And behind creation is God. So we have a good God. The scripture opens with God making something out of nothing. Sometimes we use a Latin word, creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Even before creation, there was God. Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God. God did not create himself, which cannot even happen. He didn't create himself when he created the heavens and the earth. He didn't have to be created. He is the creator. There's never been a time when God has, been, has not been. He was not forced to create. You know this. He didn't have to create you. He was perfectly in communion with the others, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, perfectly in communion with one another for all eternity. But he chose to create. And he chose not only to create, but to create good things for you and me and for his glory. Even by considering his creative acts, we behold his goodness. There was a formless earth. Darkness pervaded the whole of creation for a time. And then God created light and brought order out of disorder. The Lord separated the waters above from those below. And then he made land. He made the earth sprout vegetables, letting all his creation know to eat their greens. That one was for you, Joan. He made the greater lights, sun and moon, and all of the lesser lights, all those stars. He filled the heavens with birds aplenty and the waters with countless creatures of the deep. On day six, he filled the earth, he filled the land with all manner of animals and creeping things, and it was good. Why was this creation good? Because the one who created is good. Life, light, nourishment, strength, energy, activity, mobility, and all the rest, these are all good things from our good God, who has life in himself. Our God is good. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see not only a good God, but we see a good creation. The good God created a good creation, which culminated in the creation of man, male and female. God crowned creation with man, male and female, who would represent God, who would serve God. God blessed Adam and Eve. He told them to be fruitful and to multiply, to have dominion over all the earth, to fill the earth. God provided Adam and Eve with more than what their finite but sinless minds could imagine, could think. He said to them, everything that I have just created in these past six days is for you. Eden is not the end-all, be-all. You're not just supposed to hang out here in Eden, work it, serve it, and then stay here forever. No, fill the earth, multiply, have dominion over all the earth. It's all for you. What a good God Adam and Eve served. It was all for them. 
They were the crown of his creation. No one was better than Adam and Eve. Even the angels, the heavenly hosts, were not made in the image of God. Adam and Eve had it all. Because our God is good, the image that God made Adam and Eve into is a good image as well. God did not create Adam and Eve with a bad image. God is good, his creation is good, and the image that Adam and Eve are made into is a good image. Our good God did not leave himself without a witness, either from without or from within. Wherever man looked, he would see the glory of God displayed. Wherever he listened, he would hear the heavens declaring the praise of God. God gifted Adam and Eve with immortal and rational souls and filled them with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness and with God's eternal law written upon their hearts. Man was not created as a blank slate, but as a whiteboard full of the indelible divine writing, a permanent marker, if you will, rather than a dry erase one. Now, given a warning not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were fully equipped in body and soul to work and to serve Eden and to exercise dominion over everything. They were fully equipped. And why did God do this? Why did God give, why did God make man? Why did God give a good creation? Why did God make man into his own image? Well, our own confession of faith in chapter 4, paragraph 1 Summarized, says this, It pleased the triune God to manifest the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create in the space of six days everything and all very good. So there we have it again. We're back to where we were last Lord's Day. God desired to manifest his glory, to demonstrate his glory through his eternal power, his eternal wisdom, his eternal goodness. And so he creates everything that is out of nothing and in only six days and all very good. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but it is good to be reminded of these foundational truths that your God is good God, that this creation is a good creation, that you are even today made in God's image. We serve a good God. We glorify God and enjoy him forever in part because he has given us the life of creation. He has filled our days with the light of his sun. He has illumined our nights with the moon. He has given us water to drink, water to cool off our hot bodies in the summer, water to clean ourselves with. He has given us creatures above and below that we might behold his manifest goodness, his wisdom, his creativity, and that we might even eat some of them as well and enjoy good gifts from God. He has given us earth on which to build homes, neighborhoods, towns, cities, states, and even nations. He has given men wives. He has given women husbands. He has given parents children, and children parents, and all for his glory. In the house that God provided for his image bearers, there were no cobwebs. There were no dirty baseboards. There was no mildew in the shower. No dirt ingrained into the carpet, no dried yogurt on the windows. None of that. The house was filled with vibrant colors, with inviting furniture, with a fire of warmth for the body, and image bearers for the warmth of the soul, and most likely 
a pet kitty cat and a chicken or two. Our good God is nothing but friendly and fatherly to his good creation. Our God is good. Amen. And what does the first image bearer do? How does the first image bearer respond to this fatherly and friendly care of creation? He responds with enmity. He responds with hostility, with violence. Before Genesis 3.15 is verse 6, obviously. And in this verse, we see that Eve saw the fruit. She was delighted by it, and so she ate. And what does she do? She gives this fruit to her husband, who was right there with her the entire time while she was being tempted, abandoning his own husbandly duty to drive out the tempter. The enmity between God and man was first initiated not by God, but by man because of man's sin. There is enmity in Genesis 3.15 that God puts between the woman and the serpent. But before that, the enmity is initiated by man, by God's image bearer, by the one who had everything. Now, Calvin speaks about the necessity of persevering in the faith despite persecution. He wrote in his book concerning scandals, To you, persecution is so grievous that you are retreating from Christ. Why? You have no idea how valuable Christ is. It's an excellent quote about how to handle persecution and how to value Christ over pain. Now, we might, for a time, understand the temptation that we feel to resist Christ in the heat of a trial, when we are at the the crux of a persecution. But what was Adam and Eve's excuse? Have you wondered that? I know I have. The snake did not coil its body around their necks, threatening to cut off all circulation for good unless they recanted their belief in God. The serpent didn't strike Adam and Eve in the heel and then promise to give them the remedy if they just switched allegiance. And can we say that Adam and Eve didn't know how valuable God was? Well, surely they knew. God had made them his special creatures. And God was not holding out on them. In fact, he told them that they had everything except for one tree. The world was theirs. Literally, all of creation was for them. They were not ignorant. They didn't wonder who had created them. They knew who created them. Our own confession says that they had knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. They knew God. Mysteriously. And it is a mystery. Hopefully a mystery that will be solved when we come, uh, when Christ returns and we will uh, know more things with greater clarity and precision. But mysteriously, they sinned. Adam and Eve sinned and displayed enmity for God as they befriended the snake. Now, what does God do in this situation but show friendship to sinners? The good God will divide serpent from the woman, 
which means that she will be on God's side. Not that she now deserves to be on God's side, but God has graciously placed her on his side against the serpent. Yes, Adam and Eve had sinned, but the Lord God will provide atonement for them. You just have to read the rest of Genesis 3, and you see it. God kills animals, covers them with animal skins. And even through Adam's own confession of naming of his wife, the mother of the living, there is an indication that Adam has trust in his creator, in his now savior. To Eve, the tree was a delight to her eyes. And to God, Eve now remains a delight to God's eyes as she is seen by eyes that glisten with grace. She and her husband will be saved. If you ever wondered if they're, going, if they're in heaven, you don't need to wonder. Genesis 3 gives you enough information. You will see them in heaven. And you can ask them a lot, of, a lot of good questions. I know I have a few. This restored friendship will, however, mean enmity. It will mean hatred. It will mean violence. It will mean opposition. But this time, it is not between God and redeemed. It's between man and serpent. See the woman and Satan. The offspring of the snake will fight the offspring of the woman. Friendship with God now means enmity with the world, as James has told us. And the Bible has shown this struggle time and again. If you want a a summary of a biblical theology of the serpent and the serpent slayer, you can look at Andrew Nassali's book. It's on the book table. There's only one left called The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer. But Andrew Nacelli says, Satan energizes his offspring to be serpents that deceive and devour people. Consider Egypt and its Pharaoh. In Ezekiel 32, verse 2, the Lord calls Pharaoh a serpent, a dragon in the seas. Says, you trouble the waters with your feet and foul their rivers. This is what Pharaoh the serpent tried to do to Israelite boys casting into its foul Nile River whatever Israelite boy the snake could twist its body around. The serpentine dragon despises babies, despises little ones made in the image of God. Or consider King Herod. Centuries later, King Herod would reinstate these draconian ways. Joseph and Mary were urged to flee from the wrath of Herod because Herod was about to search for the Christ child to devour him. His plan, however, was thwarted by angelic intervention. Still, he thrashed and raged against others. And tragically, Herod had killed all the male children in Bethlehem two years and younger. Or consider the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just a few decades later, when Jesus posed a threat to them, the snakes came out. They proved their identity that was given to them by John the Baptist. He called them a brood of vipers. And remember, he asked them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You are a brood of vipers. And when Jesus was involved in his ministry and he spoke of the good tree versus the bad tree, he told the Pharisees to look at their own venomous hearts, that they are a brood of vipers, that they would speak only evil. These fallen Pharisees. These serpentine Sadducees have sunk their fangs into the bodies and lives of many. Jesus says they murdered the prophets and they made people twice the children of hell as they are. That is enmity. 
that is a hatred against God and God's image bearers who've been redeemed. And surely countless other examples could be given to impress upon us the reality of this enmity. But I don't think we need to go through example after example. We see the application point here. Struggle with a keen eye to the reality of enmity. Struggle. Fight. Fight the good fight with a keen eye to the reality of enmity, that there is enmity, there is hatred, there is opposition, there is violence. There is real enmity between the serpent and the woman. His seed versus her seed. There is a real bruising of the heel of the woman's seed of the feet of Jesus. Genesis 3.15 says that there will be a struggle between our Savior and the serpent, Satan. The son knew this enmity like no one else did. For all the hellish hosts seized upon him at the cross. The serpent of old and all of his lesser snakes wrapped their fiery bodies around his, totally blind to the real fire that engulfed him, the fire of the Father's wrath for our sin. We might even wonder if Jesus ever felt those little serpentine nibbles. But the snake did bruise his heel. Jesus suffered. He was crucified. He died, and he was buried, and he descended into hell. He descended to the grave. And now we, the spiritual offspring of the Son of God, will know this enmity because of our union with him. One of the things that you get because you are joined to Jesus is hatred. One of the things that you receive is enmity from the world. Hatred from the world. And still we are surprised. Why doesn't the world love us? Can't we just get along with the world? No! Of course not! Stop being so buddy-buddy with the world. Despise the world. Say no to the allures of the world. Say no to the hisses and the whispers of the serpent. It is foolish to view the church here on earth as already the church triumphant and not as it is. She is the church militant, militant, fighting, struggling, at war, at war with the flesh, at war with the world, at war with the devil. Satan tempts us to question the truth about God's word, about the truth of God's promises, about the truth about the real experience of God's grace, of his mercy. Satan tries to lead us away, arguing that because of our sin, we are not true children of God. There's evidence enough. You're a sinner. You are not a child of God. That's what Satan wants us to believe. Satan tempts us to sin, and then he accuses us when we do sin, trying to drive us deep into despair. Satan offers you the kingdom in all of its colorful hues, but he has only darkness to envelop you in. He does not have the vibrant colors of creation. He has just black. Smoke. Ignorance of this enmity, beloved, is not heavenly bliss. It is hellish agony. We must then always be on the watch. Ever watchful for the enmity of the world. And haven't we seen in our own ABF part of that struggle with Machen's Christianity and liberalism, any attempt to deny 
the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, any attempt to deny the inspiration of the scripture, the virgin birth of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of those who are in Christ, Christ's second coming, Christ's real miracles, any attempt to deny any of these things is coming from the devil and those who are in league with him. And they must be avoided. They must be eschewed. They must be combated with the truth of God's word. We fight. We fight watchful. But we fight knowing that the heel bruising is painful, but not fatal. And so finally, I want us to look at the glimmer of hope in Genesis 3.15, already here in this first text. Now, a couple of weeks ago, my son Joshua and I were play fighting. He had a weapon. He had a stick. And we were on the driveway, and we were squaring off and ready to go. And as he considered where to stick me, he knew that some places would hurt more than others. And he was reasoning out loud this way. Joshua says, if I hit a daddy in the leg... Daddy will be injured. If I hit a daddy in the heart, daddy will be dead. And I, it was one of those proud father-son moments that we relish in. Yes! He knows the difference between a flesh wound and striking a vital organ, even in this playtime. Some will hurt more than others. And what do we have here in this text but this distinction? There's a blow to the heel of Jesus... And there's a blow to the head of Satan. Unless you're Achilles, you prefer the blow to the head for your enemy. And you would prefer the blow to the heel for yourself. It is Satan who ultimately receives the mortal wound. He is the conquered. He is not the victor. Now, we saw just a little bit ago those illustrations, those few illustrations of enmity. And so we return to them for the fuller story. Again, consider Egypt and Pharaoh. The Pharaoh did much damage to Israel and even tried to terminate the life of Moses. Yet Moses escaped. His body wasn't thrown into the Nile. The snake didn't trouble the waters with its feet against Moses. And it's worthwhile knowing that Moses means drawn from the water. And Moses went on to fight the Voldemort of Egypt, and he lived to tell the story. Or consider King Herod. Yes, Herod had killed many male boys in the days of Jesus, yet Mary escaped. Herod's wrath was because his will was thwarted by God. He did not kill Jesus. Joseph and Mary went on to bring their child to safety to raise him up before God. This Edomite Nagini would be force-fed dust all of his remaining days. Or consider again the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yes, these men deceived and devoured many, and they sought to kill the life of Jesus. Yet, the Messiah escaped. He could easily slip past this brood of vipers until it was his time. Remember, he said, you don't take my life. I give up my life willingly. It is mine to give, to give up, to lay down, to give up. And he raises himself on the third day. Yes, they nailed him to the cross. 
but only because he let them. We must not be mistaken. Jesus is victorious, but that's only because of his death. And that's where this analogy earlier doesn't um, work perfectly, that there was a vital organ that was crushed. Jesus did die. It wasn't just a flesh wound. The blow to Jesus' heel in Genesis 3.15 is the earliest reference to the crucifixion. Jesus dies. He truly died. It wasn't a figment of anyone's imagination. He didn't swoon. He wasn't simply weak and then revived by the cool of the air. No, he truly died. But Jesus dies victorious because it was his death that brought the death blow to the snake. It was also the death that brought the death blow to our sin, that paid the penalty for our sin. Hebrews 2.14 says, It was through the death of Christ that he destroyed the devil and his power. You do know that Satan has been significantly weakened because of the death and resurrection of Christ. Yes. Now, I'm already anticipating next Lord's Day's sermon in the morning. But Jesus is victorious. He is king even now. And the devil is a wounded enemy. He's prowling around like a lion, seeking someone to devour, but he has been defeated. He is a defeated enemy. And he is just foolish to think that he is victorious, that he is going to win something, like he's going to come out on top. But sin blinds you, and the devil is quite blind. One man says, in his sentence of doom, Satan discovered that he had been too clever after all. He thought he was going to terminate the son, but he ended up terminating himself. Through the horrifying but awe-inspiring crucifixion, Jesus defeated death and the devil. He who is a resurrection and the life proved this victory by raising himself three days later. And so just as we are united to Christ in his suffering, so too we are united to him in his resurrection. And therefore, we can fight with a keen eye to the victorious Savior. Paul blesses the Romans and all of us Christians in his benediction at the end of Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is to say that he who was defeated at the cross is even now being pushed into the dust further and further, made to eat the dust, ashamed. Marcellus Kick wonders what kind of reception the devil got when he returned to hell without Jesus. He says, What a welcome will the devil receive from those whom he has deceived? What curses, what abuses, what reviling, what berating will be heaped upon his head? You know the devil returns to hell empty-handed. He returns to hell like a dog with a tail between his legs. Ashamed. Not victorious, but defeated. Beloved, you are part of the church militant. You and I, right now, are fighting. You know the fight. You feel the fight every single day. You see it on social media. You see it in your own family. You see it with co-workers. You see see the struggle 
with your own temptations. You struggle struggle with your own sins, with the sins of others, with the suffering of the world. You know that this is a battle. It is not, however, a losing battle. You are fighting a victorious battle. Why? Because the one who leads you in battle is victorious even now. The victorious Savior then means that we are victorious saints. We are, as Paul calls us, more than overcomers. Not just victorious, not just overcomers, but more than overcomers. Abundantly victorious. Not because of anything about us, but because of who we're joined to. The one in whom we are. Jesus Christ, the victorious King. I gotta say, you seem awfully quiet for this message of victory. But I'm, that's it. And we're at the end, I'll just tell you that. It means that the heavenly church triumphant is really a foretaste of what is to come. The remarkable thing, again, and I'm anticipating next Lord's Day sermon, is that the church triumphant right now is the remnant. More on that next week. But it is right now a foretaste of what is to come. Now, this note of victory ought to ring hope in our ears, and I trust it does. In 1562, the Queen of Navarre was a public spectacle. She was above reproach. Her reputation was spotless. Her dignity and her prudence were well-known and were well-loved. But her husband's was not. She loved the Reformation, but her husband hated it and had set his own servants loose on the truth. And Calvin writes a letter to her. In this letter, he sympathizes with her bitter affliction. He knows how hard a fight she has because she has an immoral and godless husband who happens to be king. And he reminds her that we cannot serve God without fighting. I know many of us would rather just be passive in this, but a fight is active. And that is our responsibility this side of heaven. It is to fight. It is to engage in spiritual warfare. If you didn't get that from the book of Judges, just reread it. It's a fight. And so Calvin sympathizes with her. Much affliction, much pain. He urges her then, because of this affliction, he urges her to be bold. Even as she fights for the truth and pays dearly for it, she is to have courage. Likewise, we are to have courage. Likewise, we are to be bold in the fight. And why? Calvin says, Should the whole world be turned upside down, if our anchor is cast in heaven, however tossed we may be, most assuredly we shall arrive in safety at the harbor. Whatever you and I are going through, dear ones, however tossed our little boats might be, the captain of the boat is Jesus Christ. He is the ark of safety. Our hope is sure. Our destination is heavenward. In this, we are confident. And how do we know it? Because Jesus, the seed of the woman, allowed Satan and the whole world to turn on him and to crucify him on the cross. The Son allowed his Father in heaven to cast him into the grave for three days. His heel was bruised. But then, up from the grave, he arose. Amen. Let's pray. Our glorious King, we, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we see the reality of the fight that we have 
We see this fight throughout all of Scripture, and we know it all too well in our own experience. But we thank you, Lord, even as we mourn with hope, we fight with hope, we fight with victory, knowing that you, O King Jesus Christ, are on the throne, and you are a good king, and you are a powerful, wise, majestic, and active king, subduing all your and our enemies. We thank you, O Jesus Christ, for living, dying, and rising from the dead for us. And in that resurrection, we see great victory, great hope for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.